Hello, this is Media Talk USA. I'm Jeff Jarvis. On this podcast, he's the second richest man in the world, but even with $37 billion in disposable income, Warren Buffett says he wouldn't buy a newspaper at any price. But what about their slick cousins? Well, Connie Nast closes portfolio, so is the gloss wearing off magazines, or at least magazine launches. I'm optimistic. I mean, our issue had nothing to do with people's demand and desire for that material. It was a business model issue. A quick look at swine flu coverage. It really is all of humanity that is under threat. But of course, it could get worse. That's right. You could lose some simple rights, like going to the movies. Plus, it was vital for the survivors of Hurricane Katrina, so could Craigslist help in a pandemic? Basically, people are going to have to alert medical professionals and, frankly, people with emergency food and water, where they are, how to get to things, maybe will be part of that. We speak to the website's founder, Craig Newmark, who comes complete with his own sound effects. And I'd like to end with... Mediatalk USA from GuardianAmerica.com and PaidContent.org. Welcome to May's Media Talk USA, the second edition of The Guardian's Transatlantic Podcast. I'm Jeff Jarvis, new media columnist, blogger, and Twitter addict. If you notice something funny about my voice, a richer, deeper timber, apologies, as I've been a little under the weather this weekend. However, at the time of this recording, current CDC guidelines state swine flu, uh, sorry, H1N1, cannot be transmitted through podcasts. Joining me in the isolation booth this week, first, New York Times media columnist David Carr, who has been writing about media and working in it for decades. His book, The Night of the Gun, is coming out soon in paperback. I'm wearing a mask just for the record. (laughs) David recently called me a digital scold, and I'll be wrapping his knuckles for that soon. On the other side of the table, in fact, one reason why we are all here today is Brooke Gladstone. Brooke is managing editor and co-host of Public Radio's On the Media show and podcast. She's our competitor then. Some time ago, I blogged wishing that On the Media would take on more current news, but Brooke told me... Get your own show, Jeff. So, here we are. (laughs) Thank God you're off my back. He's just got more platforms from which to attack. (laughs) We'll Twitter this momentarily. So, David, uh, your column in uh, your latest column in the Times, uh, you said you're getting some Twitter hell, and I see why because you're defending the primacy of the paid newspaper journalist and using a few bad behaving bloggers to uh, besmirch the amateur corps, no? Well, I wonder where all this great news that you envision is going to come from, uh, Jeff. I think the crowdsource sort of efforts, very nascent as they are and very uh, experimental, haven't yielded much. And absent uh, a model of paid professional uh, content makers, I think that a networked ecosystem of bloggers is ill-matched against dense government issues, against complicated business issues. I don't I've, I've never seen this this great, wonderful future that you're talking about. It never seems to arrive. And with paid ads on the web, especially display, display going into the tank, I don't know where the money's going to come from to support the kind of reporting we as a culture need. Politico last week. Uh, Which is supported by paper that they put out on the street every they, week. They profiled, I'm not against paper, they profiled um, uh, Talking Points Memo. 
which does do investigative journalism and does pay its people, though a pittance, isn't that the beginning, the glimmer of some new model? Talking Points Memo has done amazing work, some of which has been uh, uh, great for political readers, some of which has been wonderful for the republic. But I would, um, just as you accuse me of cherry-picking little examples, I think if we sat down and really talked about the people who are supporting great reporting on the web, we could count that on one fist. There really is not a lot going on in terms of great paid reporting. And it's how I eat, so I'm sort of sensitive about it. (laughs) And I don't blame you. On the other hand, though, I think that there is maybe a false dichotomy here between uh, no paid professionals and and everybody doing, you know, half-assed work for free. I mean, the fact of the matter is, is you can have a core of paid people and that we're seeing just the beginning of that because we don't see it thoroughly developed at this point doesn't mean that uh, it isn't going to come. The fact is, is that, you know, Twitter is relatively new. The kinds of technologies that link people on a moment to moment basis to enable the crowdsourcing that Talking Points Memo does, you know, it, it uses professionals to marshal non-professionals who are plugged in or willing to devote their time for free. These are, you are right, Talking Points Memo is a single example. There are others, I'm sure, out there, but none that probably present themselves yeah, so clearly to, to us in our world. annotating content that has been professionally gathered. Actually, not, not, the, not case the, the case of Talking Points you, yeah. Memo, because they often use uh, primary documents and use their crowds to go through them, you know, paragraph by paragraph. This is how they've done a lot of their original reporting. You're quite right that a lot of this stuff is just aggregating and reorganizing and commenting on professional news gathered by professional news gatherers, by journalists. But I don't see or I don't foresee that it is inevitable that the professional journalist will disappear. I think the kind of institutions that used to support them will change. But I don't know that paid scribes will disappear. In all of the revolutions we've had so far, they've managed to find a way to survive. So let's get started then. Magazines later, first newspapers. Media Talk USA. So newspapers have been struggling. Here are a few recent headlines. U.S. newspaper circulation falls 7%. Advertising famine ravages the New York Times and Yahoo profits. Baltimore Sun journalists laid off while covering baseball game. Philadelphia Inquirer, among others, placed under bankruptcy protection. L.A. Times cuts 300 staff. Then one of the world's most successful investors was asked for his thought on the future of newspapers. Not what print journalists at Warren Buffett's press conference perhaps were hoping to hear. The billionaire financier told shareholders at Berkshire Hathaway's annual meeting that newspapers face, quote, unending losses, that they have lost their, quote, essential nature, and that he would not buy a newspaper or its stock at any price. This comes from a man who owns the Buffalo News and is a board member of the Washington Post Company. And they call me a doomsayer. Uh Uh-oh, we can't avoid it. We have to talk about business models for news. Present and future (laughs) business models. That's my sting. Monetizing the newspaper industry. Just like a good blogger, I stole that from Brooke. (laughs) Well, we've been talking about it for so, you know, so often, week after week, that we decided that we would just uh, announce it whenever we would. So uh, Mark Phillips on our staff created that, sang it, and produced it. We're all very grateful. The, uh, you know, the fact of the matter is, is, you know, 
it is a horrible, horrible time for the institutions that so many of us love and value and cannot imagine being informed about the world without. And, uh, you know, and Warren Buffett was also, you know, we should say at, at one point, a big investor in the Boston Globe a number of years ago. He is a guy that is attributed with being able to see the writing on the wall, although he's kind of messed up his own bottom line recently and said he wouldn't buy Berkshire Hathaway stock right now. At least he's honest. But the fact of the matter is, is that, you know, we, we're not going to, there's no, none of us is going to deny that newspapers are in terrible, well, so terrible trouble. If you own the Boston Globe, but I think you could for about a dollar, what would each no, of you do with it? No, it's going to cost you a pair of pants. For sure. <laughs> <laughs> what would you do with it? I'll start. Go ahead. Turn off the presses, get rid of the trucks, Go ahead and admit, as Buffett says, that there are unending losses in print as a model. It has treated us well for more than a century, but the future is unquestionably online. The cost structure of print is high. Why not transform the Boston Globe into the first major metro, purely digital enterprise and make it a laboratory for the New York Times? That's my bid. When this, the snowball of Omaha says you don't have a snowball's chance in hell, <laughs> You got to take a deep breath because he has been a longtime supporter of the Washington Post, but first quarter, Washington Post newspaper, not the company, lost $53.8 million. Most scarily, online ads down 8%. And so we, when, when you talk about that future, which I tend to agree with in terms of it's time to um, uh, uh, start shutting off pieces of the apparatus and see what remains. Understand you're doing it into a headwind where there's this, the problem with the web is there's an unending supply of advertising. There is no scarcity. Can the Boston Globe or the New York Times or the Washington Post start to replicate a model of scarcity, not in terms of information, but in terms of advertising and quit participating in a commodity market in terms of advertising? Some people think one way to do that might be to have Wait for Jeff to pounce here. A wall <laughs> behind which you have a rich demographic of people who want the product and are willing to pay for it. Tiers of service, a generic free product there for the scraping or stealing, as Jeff just did with Brooks Bit. <laughs> um, and you can leverage uh, um, ad market remnant ads against that. But maybe uh, – Behind that would be tiers of service in which people would – all the things that we've come up with at the New York Times since 1995 or so, all beautiful bolt-ons. And uh, I, I happen to be a huge lover of our website. None of that has cost anybody anything. What, what if um, in order to comment on the New York Times, you had to be – a subscriber. I'm sure it would take a lot of uh, wonderful people out of the mix, but it'd probably wipe out a lot of trolls too. <laughs> uh, I do think the tier possibility is, is a really scary one. We've seen it fail in the past, but it's also, as uh, Clay Shirky says, you might as well put a make me invisible sign on you because since most people are getting their information out there, if it isn't there uh, in the mix, it almost ceases to exist. People don't even really know about it. You have to sort of get used to just going somewhere and be willing to pay for it, there is there is the possibility that it really isn't going to be an advertising model and it isn't going to necessarily be a, uh, you know, a pay-for-access model, but it might be a, a voluntary contribution model. As somebody who works for uh, public radio, it's always amazed me that 
10% of listeners, roughly, give or take a couple of percents, over every year, no matter what the conditions are, whether great or horrible, 10% will kick in. And, and they're augmented by rich people, big donors, who will as well. And this is, this is a large part of how public radio survives. And it's because it has a really, really uh, local listenership that feels an identification and a responsibility. I think that's certainly part of the model. The question really is, is, is there a market demand for quality journalism? And, and can the market meet that? I'm an optimist to a fault. I think it can. I think I hear optimism from but, Brooke. But, but I'm, I'm not getting it, Jeff. How does it how, how does it happen? You have you have uh, an attenuating um, print base of revenues, um, attenuating base of of customers, and then on the digital side, what pure digital news play is making money? Denton is a Gawker. You consider it news? I, I competed with Gawker last week on the portfolio story, and they were making phone calls and. It was one one day when they had a great portfolio story up at noon o'clock. I had gotten the news break, but then I set about feeding the larger apparatus that pays my bills and and takes care of our subscribers. Where I called, you know, the called Joanne Lippman, called X Y Z, and then went through copy edit. And ten hours later, something popped out. I'm not sure it was all that much better than Hamilton Nolan's story twelve hours earlier. It kind of was a moment for me, I got to say. I was told, and these numbers could be total crap, David, complete crap, but somebody who watches these things said that it costs about $1.3 billion to put out the Times each year, and almost a billion of that has to do with uh, printing the paper, squirting ink on it, trucking it, and and and, and so forth, that if you remove the, the paper aspect of it, the amount it would take to put together the whole paper would be, you know, vastly, vastly smaller. And then if you spun off the stuff that wasn't, that many people don't regard as essential to newspapers anymore because it doesn't have to be a one-stop shop, spin off movie reviews. Does every town have to have oh, a movie you review? Are so spin- crazy. You are so out of your box, bro. Oh, yeah? I want to know why you think that I'm, I'm, you know, nuts here. Is it because it's the movie ads that pay for the paper? Is oh, that yeah. what you're let's, saying? Let's take huge. We had 8 million hits on our uh, Academy Awards at the day, the day of the Academy Awards. I'm sure the entertainment ads constitute 10 to 20 percent of our hey, if that's an Just ad- a sec. Let's cut that off and see how things go. Somebody wasn't talking about the New York Times when they were talking to me about this. And let us, you know, let us stipulate that the Cultural coverage in the New York Times is something people really would pay for and really advertise it's around it if it's still that. that okay, the then I, I withdraw that. But there mm-hmm. are other aspects and bits of it. The the car section, the here's, sports section, they're only for advertising. What, and if that model goes away, you don't need to uh, have people doing oh, that at the, the paper. Reven- take the revenue with it. I do think that that revenue isn't doing much for the paper right okay, now, is one, it? One, here's what I would do. If you were going to build a newspaper today... Would you index into the ink and trucks business a bunch? No. No. You would not. Would you have a large centrally located headquarters filled with uh, editors that iterate and reiterate copy? No. No. Probably not. I think that looking at the way in which the paper is put together and disseminated, I think that the the physical artifact of the newspaper – Let's just admit, I I got four papers delivered at my home today, so I'm I am that old guy. I got five. You did, yeah. 
I'm my, my wife reads Jeff. them. <laughs> my wife reads them more than I do. And I, I'll tell you, the uh, the platform itself of um, newsprint, its search, searchability, its serendipity, beautiful technology. David, I, I love Malcolm horses, Gladwell. too. Horses are wonderful. Why did we stop riding them? Ma- Malcolm Gladwell said, just think if paper was invented four years ago, what a wonder we would think it was. <laughs> Media Talk USA, from The Guardian and Paid Content. All right, from one bit of bad news in paper to another. The bad news for paper fondlers continues with word that, as you said, David, Connie Nast has folded its financial news magazine portfolio. This comes at the same time that Connie Nast relaunches Wired in print in the UK. So what are we to make of this mixed news for the fate of magazines? So let's listen to Joanne Lippman, the outgoing editor of Portfolio, as she talks about what happened to her magazine and what it really is. In the very first issue, we, we reported on credit default flops, which we called the $300 trillion time bomb, which turned out to be prescient. We were the first publication to report on how overleveraged the big investment banks were. We predicted the federal bank bailout more than a year ago. We predicted also more a year, more than a year ago when oil prices were rising. We predicted that they were going to fall below $50 a barrel. Journalistically, we were right on track. And in terms of readership growth, we were well ahead of our plan. So there was certainly a demand among readers. There is an obvious and terrible irony to this. Right now, we need financial coverage more than ever. In my entire career... Uh, I have never seen so much of a demand from readers for this information. People wanted this information, and I think they want it from other sources as well. So there's a real irony there. Magazines will come back and continue, but what's probably in jeopardy now is magazine launches. It costs an incredible amount of money, a reported $100 million plus for portfolio. My magazine, Entertainment Weekly, went through more than $200 million. Is anyone going to take that risk anymore? Um, I know know in terms of portfolio, there was a demand for the material that journalistically, in terms of readership, we were doing what we set out to do, and the readers were responding. Um, The second thing I know is, as I said, magazines are not easily replicable by the web the way that you could argue that newspapers are because of that tactile experience and because of the the experience of um, reading a magazine. And at the same time, as you point out, the media model is changing. So my feeling is that the transformative change is still down the line, and, and, and the transformative change is going to follow the technology. I, I think at some point the technology evolves so that you can have an aesthetically pleasing and tactile experience with a piece of technology, something that's lightweight and maybe has a flexible screen and it's backlit, it's portable, that at some point will be aesthetically pleasing enough to to give you that sort of experience that you can get now from a magazine. It doesn't exist yet. David, do you want to begin or shall I? Um, I'd like to just mention a few things. The $100 million build-out, we've seen with the Huffington Post and uh, other digital products that vast, powerful brands can be built out that that land right in the middle of people's lives can be uh, built for a fraction, a fifth. A tenth. So the idea that it takes $100 million, or in the instance of EW, $200 million to project into... It wasn't all my fault, by the way. I want to make that clear. I'm an EW fan. Um, and But the fact that it took that much to project into the public consciousness, not going to work. Number two, Joanne is correct in saying that they, they did a good job on timing some stories. But the core competence of Condé Nast is covers. 
And on that, this this is a magazine company that knows how to do covers. I think she had Sarah Palin on the cover. The other thing to sort of look at is to say it kind of brings the lie to a kind of as corporate sort of ideology, which is if there's a reader need, we will fulfill it. And as it turns out, just by Joanne's own sort of quote, if there's a reader need, and I do think the reader metrics were growing and developing, and I found a number of fans, but it wasn't meeting advertiser needs. So, Exactly. And I want to give another example of that that's really created a kind of a cult desperation online, and that was the demise of uh, Domino, another Condé Nast publication. 800,000 readers, readers many, many of whom have gathered together, coalesced in these miserable little clots of, of uh, grieving readers who would certainly be willing to add another five, six, ten bucks to their subscription to hold on to it. But as uh, I am told, one Condé Nast executive said, uh, you know, the readers are, are too fickle. They're too changeable. I would rather have a half a dozen solid, reliable advertisers. And if I can't hold on to that, then I not, you know, then I don't want to cast my lot in with a bunch of readers who could change their minds at a moment's notice. I think that, you know, it says something that there's something fundamentally wrong with that relationship between magazine and reader that has evolved over time. And that, in fact, if that model were adjusted to allow for the increased participation of news consumers that's been made possible by the new technology, I think magazines or their facsimiles, their equivalents, could could certainly thrive because people do want to be served. But the thing you said that's important about Domino is not just the content. It was the, the loyalty and passion of those readers. And magazines, I believed, should have been in better shape online because they have that community of shared interest. They just don't know how to make them talk to each other and, ha- and have them share what they know with each other. And there's huge power to be had there, free, if you think of yourself more as a community organizer and less as a printer. And I think Domino was a good example of that. Portfolio was another matter. Financial news in a monthly cycle doesn't work very well. Well, this podcast is free. We were going to charge you $10, but we didn't just because we're nice people. So take the hard work out of listening. Set up your free subscription to this podcast. All the details can be found at guardian.co.uk slash mediatalkusa. Also, please follow us at Twitter, mediatalkusa, and don't forget to come to our Facebook page and tell us what we should be doing on this podcast. Media Talk USA with Jeff Jarvis. Still to come in this podcast. Even now, uh, sometimes on Daily Show, you see some of the best reporting around because they have a bunch of people, including interns, who sit around what I hear are 15 TiVos. Let's take a look at more recent media stories from the U.S. With some of the most interesting ones, here's Ernie Sander from paidcontent.org, which is The Guardian's partner website in the U.S. Producer Andy says that I'm supposed to warn you about explicit language, but I'm actually quite happy we actually get to pass the fuck barrier. Well, it's official. Disney has finally joined News Corp and NBC Universal as an investor in Hulu. The deal adds ABC's primetime shows to Hulu as well as its daytime soaps and programming from ABC Family, Disney Channel, and SoapNet. Time Warner says it's still figuring out whether to spin off part or all of AOL. But in the meantime, it has told Google that it will buy back its 5% stake in AOL that it acquired in 2006. The Supreme Court has made a ruling to try to get rid of outbursts like this. He said, don't open the door, you'll get bees in there. 
And I said, bullshit, excuse me, and <laughs> drug him back in. A-Rod steroid use. Yeah, I stay away from steroids. You I, do. I can't afford for my penis to be any smaller oh, than it already is. If it was any, if it gets a quarter of an inch smaller, it'll be a vagina. <laughs> the high court has ruled narrowly in favor of the FCC in the agency's efforts to punish television broadcasters for airing naughty words. A big screen Kindle may be coming to the market sooner than anyone expected, though maybe a little too late to save Portfolio Magazine. The New York Times reports a larger version of Amazon's e-reader could be introduced as soon as this week, optimized for newspapers, magazines, and possibly textbooks. This week also kicks off the annual upfront negotiations between advertisers and broadcasters. CBS and Disney, who are both big players at the upfront, are expected to talk about how sales are going when they report their earnings. Other big media companies reporting financial results this week include News Corp, which had a difficult last quarter and could be a bellwether for other media companies. Paid content's gaming reporter, Tamika Key, is going to be at Digital Hollywood this week. She'll be following the money. Investment forecasts are all going down, but clearly content is still getting made. She'll be looking at whether the social gaming trend is sustainable, how indie content studios are staying afloat, and what ad sectors are showing promise. And here's a little quiz. What's the most searched term on Microsoft's live search? Embarrassingly for Microsoft, it's actually the word Google. Number two, the word Yahoo. Clearly, there was a certain amount of confusion on the part of people who use search engines. For example, the 10th most searched term on Google is Google. So are we all going to run out and buy the new supersized Kindle? Uh, not yet, because my understanding is is that Apple had waiting in the wings when it produced its uh, its iPhone a color Kindle where you could actually get uh, um, if you wanted to read magazines and uh, or things that had color in them you could do that and also read books and it's also a little bit larger and it has a very easy finger mechanism so I I just think the Kindle is still too expensive. I'm feeling a little burned because I bought the first uh, Kindle which. Now looks like something Fred Flintstone would <laughs> be seen hauling around, which is not that far away from what I look like. But I am, like Brooks, holding out for something with finger touch. Now, I talked to James Higga, who invented iTunes, about that and said, all I want is backlit. I want to be able to flip pages. I want to be able to navigate intuitively. And he said, yes, you're talking about a computer with an expensive screen. <laughs> so... I, I hope you're ready to pay for it. I have it in my hand, my iPod Touch. Right. It's a wonderful thing. It's just it's too small. And I was talking to a friend who said that she really likes the Kindle, the push-button thing, because she says it's more immersive than actually reading a book. It's like uh, it's like you're a hamster and you're going, another pellet, another pellet, another pellet, That's another pellet. That's part of why Hulu should um, do well, because it, it, to me, you know, you, you watch Hulu, and I do. I, I watch a variety of programs on Hulu. You have to declare over and over by hitting an enter button, watching the Dove commercial or whatever you're going to watch. And then each time I'm thinking to the, to the advertiser, I should be worth more because I'm proving my engagement. <laughs> yes, I'm pushing the button. That's how I'm, it works. You can't, you, you've got the earphones in, so you can't really run away from the laptop. Um, I think they should, I sh as a CPM, as a cost per thousand, I should cost a ton more than I do on network television. I yeah. laughed when they made Hulu, but I was wrong. Hulu is a big success. And you know what? The, of all industries and media that may have rescued themselves, it might be the TV networks. For more on all these stories, go to paidcontent.com.
mediatalk.org. MediaTalk USA. Now, before we start this next section, for our UK listeners, I've been asked to point out that it's Craigslist, not Craigslist. Clicking on Craigslist.org brings up a webpage that is magnificently simple and elegantly ugly. But the site, which consists mostly of classified ads, is huge, getting 22 billion page views per month. It's also the number one search term on Google. I spoke with its founder, the unassuming and proudly geeky Craig Newmark, at the Government Web Managers Conference in Washington, D.C. Oh, that sounds like some fun. Government <laughs> Web Managers. Woo! You know what? They laughed at my jokes. I loved them all. <laughs> that proves they were nerds. <laughs> well, speaking of nerds, let's hear from Craig Newmark, the king of nerds. I think we're going to see networks of networks of news deliverers. Uh, because pe- people are demanding more trustworthy news, I think we're going to see more and more fact-checking, that is, the papers which are about getting things right, like the New York Times, those are the ones that are going to do better because they already do serious fact-checking. We're going to see uh, more and higher quality journalism delivered by networks of networks of news professionals. It's going to be basically online. Uh, Papers too expensive as a medium, not only to purchase, print, but then deliver. Are you optimistic about the future of journalism? I'm extremely optimistic about journalism, especially as the uh, the kids who now get their news from Daily Show and Colbert Report, they'll start focusing on the people who do the real work. Even now, uh, sometimes on Daily Show, you see some of the best reporting around because they have a bunch of people, including interns, who sit around what I hear are 15 TiVos, and apparently they have some really good ability to look uh, back in archives, and they've done remarkable work. They are the web, the, the media critics of today. Well, they, uh, they're great at it. I remember they uh, went back to 94, found a guy who said that uh, the reason that the uh, first Gulf War didn't go far into Iraq was because that would never work. They had the guy in video, someone named Cheney. Oh, oh I'm sorry, I forgot to add. <laughs> so Craig, Craig has his iPhone before him, and he is very proud, as well he should be, that he's just downloaded a sound effects um, application, which is a great trick for uh, dinners and speeches that anyone should give. One of the great surprises, I think, for you in Craigslist was how it was used after Katrina, people finding homes and jobs and each other. Um, we now have the potential, we hope that it's unmet, of a pandemic and swine flu. Um, Craigslist and the internet itself, if we all get trapped in our homes, how do you think we can use the internet um, in new ways to keep going? Uh, I've never considered it, although yesterday at this conference uh, we heard from some of the people doing this work online. (coughs) Oh, man. Swine flavor. (laughs) (laughs) You've been in Mexico lately, have you? (laughs) Anyway, okay. I haven't thought about the way Craigslist would be used if a pandemic gets bad. But the deal is that there will be resources where people can use our site and other mechanisms. Basically, people are going to have to alert medical professionals and, frankly, people with emergency food and water uh, where they are, how to get to things. Maybe we'll be part of that. (coughs) That was the whole answer. Okay. (laughs) Thank you, Craig. (laughs) Wow. Getting trapped in our, in case we get trapped in our homes, uh, talk about engendering panic right there, Jeff. Uh, I don't know. I mean, in terms of, sure, Craigslist could do that. I don't think you need it anymore. I mean, now that you have a searchable Twitter, you don't need an intermediary site to, uh, you know, to link us all together. I mean, we can 
go there directly and find out what we need to know. And I'm sure that the public health services uh, will be more inclined to use Twitter where the information comes directly and is located or soon will be located down to the city block uh, because so much of it is sent by cell phone than than, um, ever before. So actually, I think that the Katrina role and all of that is is probably uh, no longer needed for Craigslist or anybody else to fulfill. I, I do think that location has to be sort of added in to make Twitter the kind of broadcast killer app that we're talking about. I was interested that Craig was willing to describe what it, I've always thought of as Jeff's utopia, which is all of us trapped in our basements <laughs> with some canned water and a fat broadband connection. That's in our just, PJs, please. Yes, that is, that is heaven on a stick. <laughs> Craig, I, I I just adore Craig because one of the, he's lived his rhetoric throughout his career, and it was interesting. I took Craig around the New York Times, and it was interesting for people. It gradually to dawn on this: who the schlumpy, unassuming guy? <laughs> he shot your back end off. Okay, you should know this guy. He took forty percent of the business out of newspaper business. He knows a thing or two about a thing or two. So I'm about to get on a plane for Hamburg, and I'm afraid that as soon as I cough, I'm going to be thrown overboard. Uh, Back to swine flu for a moment. Has the pandemic of panic gone too far, or will our caution and nervousness help contain the disease? In the spotlight tonight, swine flu panic grips the nation with at least 40 cases confirmed. So after hours of searching and hours of driving, we're finally going to meet the little boy that everyone is calling patient zero. There he is. Mr. Okay. Vice President, good morning. Good to see you. Let me, let me ask this, and this is by no means a gotcha type of question, I promise. But if, if a member of your family came to you and said, look, I want to go on a commercial airliner to Mexico and back within the next week, would you think it's a good idea? I would tell members of my family, and I have, I wouldn't go anywhere in confined places now. Republican Congresswoman Michelle Bachman said she found it, quote, interesting that the last swine flu outbreak was in 1976 under another Democratic president, Jimmy Carter, one who took office in 1977. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, uh, the value of... of most of those stories is absolutely nil. and But it isn't unprecedented. I mean, back in 76, a government official went on television and estimated that a million people would die from that swine flu outbreak. People settled down after that. I don't know whether everybody is still traumatized uh, about what happened in 1918, although that was mostly forgotten for a very long time when millions upon millions of people did die. But the only, uh, the only pandemic that has produced the kinds of casualties we're always getting scared about is AIDS. I think if uh, Vice President Biden keeps sticking his foot in his mouth, he's going to find out a lot more about confined uh, spaces. <laughs> the, um, the thing about what's going on is when the worst happens to humans, whether it was 9-11, which I covered, or uh, Katrina, it's never bad enough. It always is compounded and instead of being scrubbed out by the viralness of the web, it's often amplified. And un- unless on Twitter you carefully curated your sources of information, you could pretty much end up coming up out of that basement we talked about shouting, run for your lives, <laughs> we're all going to die. Speaking of Twitter, though, I saw that the disease there is called hamthrax. <laughs> <laughs> for that, I need to add in a Craig sound effect here, don't you think? Wah, wah, wah. 
See, that's just as good. So, we come to the end of our podcast. I'm off to cover myself in antibacterial hand sanitizer and masks, if I can find any. I'll just say, you're going to Hamburg, and I think I've got a speech in northern New Jersey at a senior center. I don't think I'm really running my life right. <laughs> you're playing Chuckles next, I think. <laughs> Well, thanks to my chuckling guests. Uh, on the media is Brooke Gladstone and David Carr of the New York Times. For your help, you both get free souvenir Media Talk USA protective face masks. <laughs> Next month's edition will be uploaded on Tuesday, June 2nd, the fate's willing, and the first Tuesday of every month. In contrast to Brooke's impressively long list of producers for her show, I'm ashamed but grateful to say this podcast was produced by Andy Duckworth all by himself and recorded in the studios of the City University of New York Graduate School of Journalism. Don't forget to add your comments to our blog at guardian.co.uk slash mediatalkusa. You can subscribe from there, too. I'm Jeff Jarvis. Thank you for listening. Media Talk USA from guardianamerica.com and paidcontent.org. And I'd like to end with... <laughs>